Welcome to the Tokyo Artificial Intelligence Podcast with me, Matt Bigelow. How's it going? How's your COVID crisis treating you? So in today's episode, thank you for joining. Um, this is episode number two of the Tokyo Artificial Intelligence Podcast. And I set this up to basically keep me busy as I transfer from one job to another job. Uh, my previous job involved teaching English at a telecom uh, company, one of the major ones in Tokyo, where they wanted me to teach AI and IoT in English to their artificial intelligence engineers, um, higher-ups, as well as a whole bunch of other network engineers and people in HR. Um, sort of keep me uh, in the field while my, uh, while, my, while my job is awaiting in the womb of time, uh, I've put together this podcast. For the time being, I plan on just introducing three companies hopefully a few times a week, and eventually move into some um, interviews with uh, people who work in the industry in Tokyo, in Japan, and even around the world. Uh, I, I like to uh, discuss the, the terminology in, in more of a simplistic manner, but not the way in which most journalists are trained. I, I studied journalism in university and for the most of the technology uh, reports, you're encouraged to use Hollywood as an example because most people don't understand science, you see. So you always have to reference some Hollywood movie like Terminator or uh, I Am or some sort of Will Smith type of thing uh, or Tom Cruise, you know, uh, pre-crime and, uh, you know, using your iris to suggest a Guinness uh, but I'm, uh, you know, even though I just did that, that I don't want to do that, but I don't always want to exist in the world of theoretical engineering. Uh, I want to bring it into a practical setting. We'll see if I'm able to do that or not. That's my challenge as a unemployed gaijin in Tokyo. All right. So let's take a look at, uh, we have three use cases. Um, some are identified as companies and some are identified as researchers. The first one, I'm not sure about the company name, but it could be Face++ or it could be one of the major um, facial recognition companies coming out of China. There are a few of them. Uh, and you can basically use these for the same applications. It doesn't really matter which company it is. The, the technology is the same. Basically, the database is the key point, and I guess you know who you can get into investing in your in your approach and uh, government layout as well. There is sorry, there is a company out of a uh, a coastal city of China that's trying to convert their entire city into a kind of a facial recognition security state where you get off the train and the train station um, will register you and welcome you. That's if you're um, approved to even be there. Uh, so you have to register with the city as well by scanning your face. You go to the hotel and scan your face to get your key. Then you go to the bank and you scan your face to get your money. And then you go to the conference where you scan your face, which acts as a ticket. And then, uh, you know, while you're there, there are security officers who all are also equipped with facial recognition equipment. And that's going to be the first use case for today. 
Uh, and these are Chinese facial recognition glasses with mixed reality. Uh, so I was in Beijing in May 2019. I really liked it. Uh, I guess it was the Workers' Day when the Communist Party shuts the whole country down and says, thank you, workers. So Beijing is usually coated in a Mars-like red sky. Uh, but I was there and everything was shut down. So it was a nice blue sky, uh, temperature in the high teens, low 20s. Everybody had time off and you could just kind of see people with their families walking around. I saw some guy with a giant Iron Man tattoo on his leg who must have been about 20. Uh, he had a lot of cute girls around him as well. Uh, you got to see people checking into the Marriott in Beijing with the facial recognition technology as well. Uh, I also saw a guard um, outside of a shopping center who I believe had some facial recognition equipment on him. And there was also a police robot. Uh, I saw two police robots. Um, and these aren't like humanoid robots, like a, like a Hollywood movie type. These were basically just four wheels on a pole or a pole on four wheels. And one looked kind of cutesy and the other one didn't. And the other one that didn't had some serious tires on it, like pretty, I would say, 10-inch tires with treads and um, a giant, basically, black cylinder poking out of the center. And you could see little sensors and wires, not wires, but uh, antennae on it. And I'm pretty sure that was um, a serious piece of equipment. The cops were there and they were just looking bored, basically, but I'm pretty sure that that robot was a uh, had some serious connectivity going on. So uh, today, let's take a look at Chinese facial recognition glasses with mixed reality. There are some reports about this. It's a couple of years old by now, but I'm just introducing it now to compare it to another uh, case. Uh, and in this case, uh, I'm looking at the differences between, I'm calling it for the time being, pan-surveillance capitalism, where the surveillance capitalism is just everywhere and limitless and attenuated surveillance capitalism. And I'm not sure if the word attenuated is correct here. It's just what came to my brain when I was thinking about it. And attenuated, I guess we could say limited or directed or barriered or, or bracketed. We could also call it bracketed surveillance capitalism. Uh, this is episode two, and I've been talking about surveillance capitalism a lot. I don't plan to make it a major thing. I'm going to probably, it's going to be a major thing, but I don't only want to talk about it. But today, that's what we're doing. So to the Chinese facial recognition glasses with mixed reality. So the um, police officer is walking around and his glasses are have a, have a cord attached to a smartphone and it's scanning a crowd. And if he sees somebody suspicious, he can tap the side of his glasses. It takes a picture, like a screenshot, and then it can send that screenshot from the smartphone that's attached to the cam, attached to the glasses back to his security operations center. The people there can run the faces in that screenshot through their database and see if anybody there is wanted for anything. If they are, they can send back to the cop which person in the picture and what that person has been up to and whether or not they should be arrested or not. Um, so the, it's kind of interesting because let's say if you are a foreigner or, or a criminal in China, uh, your data is going to be probably readily available. Um, 
there is no security laws there. There is no security laws. On a different tangent, there's a program where uh, facial recognition cameras attached in a classroom, and it logs the attention span and the happiness span and the confused rates of all the students and takes all of their tests and compiles them into a score and then sends all of the student data to all of the parents' phones. So you can know your child's score, but also every other child's score in the classroom. And that that information is just sent to your phones, whether you want it or not. So in this case, let's say the, the, the cop in some sort of uh, Chinese setting, he finds a bad guy. He's a uh, human trafficker. He's wanted for human trafficking. And they go, whoa, that's not good. So they uh, go up to the guy who is a human trafficker, and he notices that the cops are coming in on him. So he runs away. He slips away from the cops. He's on the lam. Um, if the, uh, if this, if the part of the city that this criminal is in has a whole bunch of, uh, cameras set up in the, uh, light posts or on buildings that are connected to a government access framework, he's going to be able to be tracked in real time via the facial recognition, uh, technology in that system. So every time his face, which is now red lit, pops up on a screen and his biometric data is captured and turned to code. And that code is now verified as criminal code. Uh, he's now tracked. So the cop is like, wow, this guy's fast. I can't really track him. So the, the cop in his um, facial recognition glasses, he has a, an a augmented um, reality panel as well inside of his goggles. So he looks down and he sees a virtual panel he brings up the virtual panel like you would in a HoloLens or something like that. And he has a whole bunch of choices. And one of those choices is Drone Squad. So now he pushes the virtual Drone Squad button, and that sends a command from some drone holding area to now find this criminal in the cloud-connected AI camera network and locate him and, and find him. And so you can have five or six drones following this facial recognition uh, uh, screenshot pattern that's being distributed through the smart city grid. And these drones in theory will be able to track him down, find him and then do X, Y, or Z. Maybe they just start saying, you know, stop uh, you bad man. Stop. We will follow you. In which case he gives up or there might be some sort of weaponry installed in the future, maybe like a poison dart or, or, or something like that. So that's one idea. And that's actually not far off. Actually, it's it's probably probably there, some aspect of it. It's not widespread throughout the entire country. Um, if you go to macropolo.org, you can see which parts of China are implementing which types of artificial intelligence technology. That's macropolo.org. Um, it's a very useful uh, resource. I'll put it on my website if you go there. Uh, I'll make a notation of it now macropolo.org all right boom done um so if we think about this idea of police having ai glasses connected to mixed reality panels that they can summon drones and send to you it's like oh that's china it's not going to happen anywhere else i don't know um that's the that's the discussion we have to have if we're gonna if we're gonna follow in edward snowden steps or Julian Assange's steps, or Kai Fu Lee's steps, or General Spaulding's steps. Um, 
recently with the COVID-19, drones have been deployed in areas of, uh, of America and the UK, where the UK has these police that are huddling in a group right next to each other, three people operating this drone. And the drone flies around and it finds some couple walking their dog in a park. Nowhere else, nobody else is around them. And the drone is like, hey, what are you doing walking your dog? It's a pandemic. Go home and stay home and shut up. Uh, or in a parkway in uh, some areas, the, the drones are flying over people in the beaches and they're like, hey, what are you doing on the beach, you criminal? Uh, you're supposed to be socially isolating yourself. Go home and shut up. Um, so I don't know. How far do we want these services to be deployed? In a pandemic? I can kind of see it. I can kind of see it. I'm not sure how much of a pandemic this is, though, to be honest. Um, uh, it's dangerous, but I'm not sure if shutting down the world is the right answer because a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and commit suicide if we do that, right? So I'm not sure if right now this drone deployment is the right approach, but I could see in a serious outbreak where people are dying in the streets, drones could be used as a rescue uh, idea. Well, one thing I had an idea of was in Japan, where I live in Tokyo, it's the Tokyo Artificial Intelligence Podcast with Matt Bigelow, after all, is uh, it's quite mountainous. So you could have little drone pods set up in secure um, cages or boxes, if you will, set up on little mountaintops or hilltops. And during a serious earthquake where you have a lot of building destruction, the drones could be equipped with um, radio frequency sensors uh, as well as uh, heat cameras. And they could fly in a grid over the city and find people trapped under buildings and then indicate where people are stuck to the police. So the police and, and, and uh, firefighters and all those people that turn up to help people in a, in a disaster know where people are and can go to them and help them as soon as possible. Uh, and if we have robots in the future or uh, automated cars, they could automatically deliver um, rescue equipment to those areas. Uh, to me, that's a fantastic idea, and I could see it saving lives and being used in a positive way. So it's a case of attenuated surveillance capitalism where you would have a municipality or government system invest in this type of infrastructure so that it could be used at an appropriate time. Uh, instead of this pan-surveillance capitalism, uh, which could be used to find dangerous people like um, traffic, uh, human traffickers. But um, with the Chinese use case, if, if, if your face pops up in the police uh, officer's search uh, request, it's not only your crimes or something like that, but the, the police officer knows what hotel you're staying in and your internet usage your internet usage will be logged to your face. And so you say, I have nothing to hide, but I mean, would you let me look through your Safari history or know what websites you go to? I mean, think about that. So we think that Google has this data, this cache or this cache of our, of our, of our subconscious, essentially big data. But now the, the police officers in China, in some cases can attach your, filtered big data to your face on the street through their glasses. Whoa. Again, that's macropolo.org. So in the, a similar use case, but in this attenuated um, or limited or bracketed surveillance capitalism is the NVIDIA holodeck. The NVIDIA holodeck is a fantastic um, way for designers 
to build, meet, design, and change in real time. If you're making a huge building and you make a 3D model of this building and there's like a park or an angle or some sort of facade or display and the person who's in charge or whatever says, nah, I don't want that anymore. It takes a huge amount of time to redesign all of that and print it and you just wait around and, and do all that. So NVIDIA has set up a holodeck where you put on the uh, VR goggles and you have a handset and I could be in Tokyo, you could be in Berlin, and this other person involved in the project could be in Shanghai. We all meet in this holodeck and we start designing a car, designing NASA's using it for their Mars rovers. And uh, helicopter uh, companies are using it to build helicopters. So we can um, also use a, a mixed reality panel in this AR space. So I could call you, for example, whoever's listening, and show you, uh, call your computer like on Skype. And you see my virtual space from your reality. And you see the coloration of the floor for the building I'm designing for you. Or you see the, the color of the helicopter door or something like that. And you could be like, ah, that color's okay. Can you make it brighter? And I just go, yeah. And I bring up a digital palette. And I literally just touch the, the digital door of this helicopter you're buying from my design team. And presto pronto, it's changed just like that. Um, it's yeah, so you can use it for office development. It's being used for that. You can also use it for uh, you know big, large scale housing developments for for city projects and things like that. Uh, I I don't have the detail on me now. I'm kind of going from memory uh, on this. I don't have a whole bunch of writing. I just have some notes and points that I want to get to. But I remember listening to a helicopter designer uh, talk about this technology and he said it reduced the amount of time to develop a helicopter from years to six or seven months uh, one of the things is because you can sit in the helicopter as you're designing it and you could hold you can understand exactly where the controls are and then you look with your vr goggles out of the helicopter door and you go oh the window's a bit low i can't really see what's going on up there and you just with a pen just like that done it's over. You didn't have to consult. You didn't have to realize it at a later time and then do a recall, something like that. It's just gone. It's out there and boom. So those are two examples of um, VR goggles with mixed reality with very different applications. The technology is almost the same, uh, but one is attenuated or bracketed and the other one is pan. So we can see how the difference it will affect our life when it's let out into the open or when it's limited to a space. And uh, for me, that's the key point there. I really think so. That's the limitation. And we're going to have some pan in the future. It's been decided. Uh, but we can attenuate the pan, which is what I'm hoping uh, to, to have some. I don't know if I'll ever have any impact on this, guys. You know, I'm just a... I'm just a gaijin in Tokyo who who stumbled into this uh, through and you know by somebody paying me to. Um, the last example we're going to use today, and it has nothing to do with what I was talking about earlier. Uh, I'll always try to include some Japanese examples. Um, AI hell is really really bad. AI heaven is really really boring. 
It, it's just something that's more efficient and you don't even notice it. Uh, what's an example of that? Uh, you don't even notice that it's more efficient. Um, for example, when's the last time you were very thankful that your smartphone didn't run out of battery uh, after six hours and that the download speeds were good and you didn't miss an update? Uh, it, that used to be a huge problem six, seven years ago and people by the millions complained that problem went away. When's the last time you were like, oh, I'm so glad, right? So that's an example of AI. I call it heaven just to uh, interpolate it, not interpolate, but to contrast it with hell. Where hell is really, really bad, heaven is just stable and boring. Sorry, guys. Uh, it's not going to be uh, the best thing ever. It's going to be something you don't even notice. So this example, mm, I, it's a research example, and this is a root optimization using Q-learning for on-demand bus systems, okay? Uh, I guarantee you to be boring sometimes. This, this research is being done by Naoto Mukai, Toyohide Watanabe, and Jun Feng. Um, and this is just a, an abstract quote, a quote from their abstract and a quote from a PDF I found for free. It's not the complete document. Don't worry, I didn't steal it. It's just the free online version that offers a sample. So I'm going to quote from it. Quote, in these years, some local communities adopt a new transport service called on-demand bus system instead of a fixed bus system in Japan. The on-demand bus system is more cost-efficient than traditional transport services because buses pick up customers door-to-door -door when needed or required. Thus, there is no predetermined travel routes for buses, and travel routes must be changed according to the accurate occurrence frequency of customers. This problem can be regarded as one of VRPs, or vehicle routing problems, and its variants. The VRP and its variants are combinational optimization problems and meta-heuristic algorithms such as GA, genetic algorithms, are major approaches to the problems. However, such meta-heuristic algorithms are unfit to dynamic problems such as on-demand bus problems. Mm. So there we go. So I was thinking of uh, contrasting this uh, so city buses can be useful and not useful. If you've ever lived in a city, uh, you know that most of the city buses are empty most of the time. Tokyo, they're pretty busy during the rush hours and things like that. But I remember living in uh, Victoria, BC, or even going around some of the minor cities across Japan. And most of the buses are empty most of the time, uh, which is whatever. It provides a job and there's like a tax-based benefit that you can point to and say like, look, we got a new bus. Your taxes at work, people. Um, but the bus on a route is just on a route. I was thinking about what's another similar thing that's different, and it's the uh, hotel shuttle buses. The hotel shuttle buses are, I would say, pretty good, right? They go around and they pick up people according to a, uh, a schedule and um, it's one bus going to a whole bunch of destinations that then go to the airport or something like that, the airport shuttle. Uh, the route optimization proposed in this AI system is similar to that, but it's done in real time. Uh, so that's where we would shift to route optimization based on real-time needs. Um, so an on-demand city bus would be like a shuttle bus but with a route that's always changing in real time. So if a customer is going between point A and point 
B and another customer requests a ride, point C is now introduced. And if another customer wants a ride, point D is introduced and so on. So a route optimization algorithm might use traffic data, map data, and construction data in addition to the general algorithm to suggest to the driver the most efficient route to take without having to take calls on the phone, right? People would just register by a smartphone app and constantly rethink routes, which is frustrating to a lot of people. If you're, you know, if you're in the middle of something and somebody says, hey, can you do this for me? You think, no, I don't want to do that for you. But if the smartphone route on your map is just saying, oh, you got to go here now, here's the route based on all of this data, you can kind of go, all right, boom, that's where I'll go. So the bus driver is still driving around. The route is changing based on on-demand real-time applications. And by using a general algorithm in combination with um, construction data, which is always approved by the city, which means it's available in a database, um, traffic data, which is also generally known, right? If you look at Google, it tells you pretty efficiently what's going on there. Um, what was the other one? I can't remember. Anyways, that would be a way to build up a database of useful planning and useful routing so that the more income is generated into the bus plan, uh, there's a driver, so you still have a job, and the driver isn't mindlessly driving on a route which is often empty of customers wishing to ride the bus at that time. Uh, don't you hate waiting for city buses too in a lot of these areas? It's like, hey, the, the bus comes once every 45 minutes and it just left three minutes ago. All right. You know, so we got to wait 45 minutes. You know, maybe if you got some some magic potions on you, you can kill some time. But if you want to go, if you need to go, hop, 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 would you be willing to pay a little bit of a premium to get there? Hmm, maybe you would. And it wouldn't be like a taxi, which are either expensive, smelly, or um, I don't know what you would say. Dodgy sometimes, eh? Dodgy taxis. All right. So, of course, when self-driving cars may be introduced into the future or self-driving buses, which is – some of them have been introduced. Uh, some of them in China. Some of – there's been a couple of test runs in Japan. If you, if you look it up, self-driving buses, you can see some, some places have been adopting them. It's, it's really low scale. But if you're a company that is introducing this, uh, this algorithm which roots for optimization based on real-time demand, you're going to be creating a stockpile of data. And if, you're, if, you're, if your optimization route is iterated and iterated, it can be uh, compiling the cleanest and best data. You can then take that data, anonymize it, and sell that data to a research institute or to another company or to um, use it to promote your solution to the city to maybe introduce similar solutions or uh, provide that to another city and expand your bus system out to other places as well. So there would be a knock-on effect to this type of solution. And it's really boring. It's just a car driving on the road with more people in it. That's all it is. Uh, there's no way that the... The algorithm is if, – if you have really sensitive um, people like the president, uh, you can use it to assassinate, of course, if you hack that planning route. But 
for the general pop, the gen pop, the, the great on warsht. Uh, this might be a solution for cities or even uh, taking uh, old folks to the hospital and back and things like that. So that's that. And that's going to be today's podcast. So that was looking at three solutions. One, pan-surveillance capitalism, where the cops have facial recognition glasses that can identify your face and, and see your internet history. The other one was the NVIDIA Holodeck. You can look all that stuff up on YouTube. I'll just put it on my link on my website, MatthewPMBigelow.com. MatthewPMBigelow.com. You can also check out my other podcasts that I do there. The Japan What Podcast with a wonderful Tom Molesky. Um, you can reference the previous podcast I was doing called The Matty B Files, which profiled indie musicians from around the world. Uh, finally, the last solution was the root optimization using Q learning for on-demand bus systems. And that was done by Naoto Mukai, Toyohide Watanabe, and Mr. Jun Feng. So thank you very much for listening and for uh, getting into it. This has been the Tokyo AI Podcast with Mad Bigelow. Thank you for listening. Thank you.